Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. This week on the Goldust Podcast, we welcome skill acquisition expert, Dr. Mark Williams. Mark is a professor and an educator and is an author of multiple books, including his most recent one, The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made. He's also worked with several high-profile organizations like FIFA, UEFA, the US military, Nike, and many more. If you're enjoying the podcast and find value in this episode, we would greatly appreciate your positive feedback. It always means a lot to us to know that people are taking things from what's going on. Mark, welcome and thank you for joining us on the Golders podcast today. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation. Of course. Now, to us, Mark, Goldust is about sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, I guess uh, it creates a little bit, it sounds almost mystical, doesn't it? The notion of gold dust per se. I mean, I suppose as a, a scientist, uh, then my notion of gold dust would be the fact that we're able to rely as much as possible on evidence-based practice in what we do on a day-to-day basis, whether that's general in player development or in coaching or whatever industry. Or professional domain we're in. Uh, I guess I'm a, a strong believer in the importance of science and uh, data-driven decision-making. We'll touch on that now then. So you are a professor in the Department of Health and Kinesiology at the University of Utah. What are some of the typical things that you would research and work on that, that assist sports? Yeah, my, uh, my interests from a research perspective uh, are really on expertise and expert performance uh, and how we develop skill across different domains. I mean, most of my research over the years has been in sport, but uh, I've also done work across a number of other professional domains like the military, law enforcement, um, medicine, aviation. And essentially what I what I look at is what differentiates expert from less expert performance uh, with a particular focus on the development of uh, what I might call perceptual cognitive skills but uh, you may refer to them as maybe anticipation and decision making or in lay terms I guess using the coaching phrase as possibly game intelligence Uh, so I'm particularly interested in that area and then secondly I have a strong interest in um, skill learning and how we can optimize the development of skill using most effective methods of providing instruction and feedback and structuring practice for effective learning. So it's, it's a kind of a multidisciplinary focus that kind of spans sports science, cognitive science and motor learning. So in, in that area, Mark, where you, you speak about perceptual, cognitive, skill learning, 
game intelligence. Technology's out there now, but it's forever increasing in, and very demanding at times, I'm sure. But what do you think will be the next frontier for sport to develop? In terms of technology and, and notably the development of game intelligence skill, then um, virtual reality, I think, has already garnered some support over the last few years. Uh, I mean, I think the advantage of virtual reality on the one side, I guess, is the fact that you can capture um, attacking sequences, defensive sequences from matches and replay them or variations of them uh, to to players during the learning process. So it's a much more controlled manner. And of course, the advantage with virtual reality is that you can look at the match from a first person perspective. Uh, so you could actually put a player back in the situation that they were in in a match uh, at, the, at the weekend. Or of course, you could put another player into that situation. So it does give the opportunity for players to be confronted with meaningful opportunities to, to practice perception and decision-making. So we've been an academic uh, and one of the world's leading authorities and expertise and its acquisition in sport. Can you share some of the primary constructs for what expertise is? Yeah, let me just go back and just elaborate a little bit on the last question because I, I, just, just to, to highlight the fact that, uh, I mean, whilst I think virtual reality will play an increasingly important role in the development of game intelligence moving forward. I mean, of course, it's not just about technology either. So, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence, for instance, that suggests that um, hours of engagement in street sport is strongly, strongly related to the development of game intelligence skill. And, of course, it's about the nature of the practice sessions that coaches structure in the sense that they're realistic and provide opportunities for dynamic decision making as would occur in, in the game setting. Uh, and there's obviously interesting interaction there as well between the nature of instruction, you know, to what extent coaches are overly prescriptive in those coaching sessions or to what extent they allow players to engage in uh, decision making through their own will, so to speak in order that they learn through through some kind of trial and error. So I'm not saying that virtual reality on its own, uh, but I think used in conjunction with some alternative methods for developing decision-making skill is important. In regards to your uh, question at the end there, I mean, yeah, expertise is, of course, on a continuum <laughs> in the sense that you might have world champions at one end of the continuum right the way down to beginners at the other end of the continuum. I suppose, ultimately, I'm interested across that continuum, uh, but particularly at the expertise side of it, you know, world-class performers, elite soccer players, and, and how they develop those kinds of skills, but also, of course, interested in the other side of the development as well, in terms of, for instance, children engaging in sport, uh, and how do we keep them involved in sport for a prolonged period of time? Mm -hmm. So in your bookmark, which recently came out, or has only, only been out for a few months, uh, the best How Elite Athletes Are Made, you, you share some wonderful insights in it. You speak about helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. Can you share what is meant by the term helicopter parenting and, and also what are some of the downsides of having helicopter parents? Yeah, I guess the downside of actually being a helicopter parent 
might be similar to what, uh, to use an euphemism, we go back to what we were talking about a minute ago. They could also refer to helicopter coaches as well. And I suppose what I mean by helicopter parents is those who are overly involved in the day-to-day -day aspects of a child's development, being overly concerned about protecting the child and, and uh, sort of holding their hand through everything and shielding them from the kinds of ups and downs that are common in life. And I guess the downside with that is that the child becomes dependent on that support and potentially is unable to become suitably independent in their own right. And I think my comment in regards to helicopter coaching is, is probably the same thing there in the sense that um, coaches can similarly be overly prescriptive uh, in the instruction and coaching process, making athletes overly reliant on their continual instruction and feedback during the learning process. I mean, ultimately, of course, elite athletes like kids have to stand on their own two feet and develop an element of independence. So I think the earlier we develop those skills, the better in terms of both child and athlete are concerned. When you, we look at the likes of Tiger Woods and you know the definition of helicopter parenting and helicopter coaching, which you like, is it's, where is the boundary? Where is the line of what was perceived to be helicopter parenting mm -hmm helicopter coaching because of the successes obviously with the likes of Tiger Woods and many other athletes uh, in actual fact where, where the, the parents have been actively involved hmm. but quite intense with it as well. Yeah I mean in my view one of the biggest driving factors really would be the passion and interest of the child to to engage in that sport and I know that there is varying sources of evidence that would support uh, early specialization uh, or diversification um, or what we've called early engagement. Uh, so with, with specialization, I guess, children tend to engage in a sport very early and that, that essentially they spend most of their time in that sport. Uh, diversification, of course, is a pathway where kids might sample a wide variety of different sports and not specialize until later on. And um, a pathway that we've identified both in uh, football, soccer, and in skiing is uh, the early engagement pathway, whereby what happens is kids start engaging in the sport very early. Uh, for soccer, it's usually around four or five years of age. For skiing, it's even earlier, two or three years of age. But, uh, but they do sample other sports during development. And, and ultimately, I think the relative advantages and disadvantages of those different pathways are partly dependent on the nature of the sport and the child's level of passion and interest uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, there are some sports where, like soccer, where kids are starting at four or five years of age and accumulating many thousands of hours by their early teens whereas there are of course there are some of the sports that are possibly less popular culturally where kids are specializing much later into so so there isn't a clear answer to the question of which pathway is best i think it depends on the child and the nature of the sport and the culture and the environment when you refer to the nature of the sport what sport specifically you are you alluding to uh, well, I think sports like uh, soccer, basketball, tennis, 
possibly that are heavily dependent on uh, technical and tactical ability, for instance, in soccer ball mastery uh, and, of course, being able to read the game. I think in those sports, the challenges are that if you don't engage uh, relatively early, then you may end up with a practice deficit whereby if you come into the sport late, you know, you're so far behind in terms of the development of those technical and tactical skills that it's very difficult to bridge that gap. Whereas there are other sports perhaps that are, are maybe less popular culturally and where physical and physiological characteristics may be the most important factors. So they might potentially be things like cycling, rowing, sprinting. Uh, and in those scenarios, then it's quite likely that early specialization sorry late specialization might be the norm into those particular sports so in chapter three of your book mark you speak about timing is everything and that the chapter talks about the impact of relative age effect on success in sport in layman terms can you explain what this is and how it may impact development sure the uh, the relative age effect uh, was first identified probably about 30, 40 years ago now, actually, maybe longer. And um, what it is, is that in any selection year, so let's say hypothetically, as is for soccer in the UK, the selection year starts in September, uh, then the tendency is for scouts and coaches to select more boys and girls that are born in the first three months of that selection year, that is September, October, November. Uh, and comparatively less kids in the last quarter of the year, which would obviously be June, July, August. Normally, I guess, in terms of birth dates, you would expect 25% distribution across uh, the four quarters of the selection year. But in, in football, for instance, it's not uncommon for 50% um, of players in Premier League academies to be born in the first three months of the selection year. So therefore, what's happening is, is the scouts, the coaches are selecting boys and girls that are uh, bigger and stronger, if you like, more chronologically and biologically mature, which is obviously giving them that physical advantage early on. And that, that effect has been shown across a wide variety of different sports, uh, both in male and female athletes. Uh, slightly more so for male than female athletes, but by and large, it also exists across uh, females, female sports as well. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, there is a paradox in here, though, to some degree, in, in what we describe in the book as the underdog effect. And the argument is actually that whilst more athletes are selected into elite training programs when born in the first quarter, uh, rather ironically, more athletes progress to professional status and receive higher salaries and are more likely to receive awards like World Player of the Year and European Footballer of the Year when they're actually born uh, later in the selection year. Um, so I guess the argument there is that if you don't have the benefits of physical size early in development, then in order to stay involved and to continue to be selected, you have to focus more so on the development of technical and tactical skills. So to some degree, actually, whilst historically, I guess uh, people have felt that those born later in the year are disadvantaged 
I actually think there are potential disadvantages at both ends of the selection here in the sense that those kids born early in the selection year may be allowed to get away with their, their physical uh, characteristics and not enough focus is placed on the development of their technical and tactical ability, whereas maybe kids later in the year uh, are able to work on those technical and tactical skills, but maybe could be deselected by virtue of the fact that physically they're not big and strong enough. Now, in your book, former Liverpool player Jamie Carragher talks about not being the fastest or tallest of central defenders. But he's very good at reading the game, reading danger, reading situations quite well. Mm. Now, what was he doing? What was Jamie doing to be able to read the game and read the danger and still be very effective at doing his job? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, great question again. I mean, maybe let me dismiss one myth in the first instance, in the sense that, you know, you quite often hear the sports commentator go, the player's got great vision or a superb eye. Uh, but the reality of it actually is that Carragher's eyesight would be no better than, than you or I, you know, in terms of the, the ability of the eyes to pick up key information. So there's no Superman vision there per se. What happens, of course, is through prolonged engagement in the sport, He's able to develop uh, knowledge structures in memory that allows him to process information in the display in a much more efficient and effective manner. So we know, for instance, that um, uh, a skilled defender like Carragher will be using the eyes much more effectively to scan around the field to pick up the positions of uh, teammates and opponents. We know that he'll be better at picking up information from the body shape of the player in possession of the ball that allows him or her to predict where the pass will go next. And, and we also know that uh, skilled defenders are very good at, at recognising structure and familiarity in evolving sequences of play such that they're able to predict what the end action sequence of that will be. Uh, and ultimately, what they do is they also develop what we call a hierarchy of probabilities in that, you know, given where the ball is, where the other players are, they develop these likelihoods, if you like, of, of okay, what's the most likely pass that will occur in this particular moment in time? So maybe the key issue here is that through this prolonged exposure to the game, then these knowledge structures develop in memory that allow them to see the world in, uh, in a different way to, to what we might do. Uh, we all might look in the same place, but obviously different people see different things. And obviously Carragher was very good at seeing the right things at the right time. Would it be a suggestion that the best players watch the game, whereas the not so good players watch the ball? Yeah, that's, that's a, a common phrase, I guess, that you will hear, hear and there's quite a bit of evidence for that. Uh, there's been some nice work done as well where people have looked at head movements during a game. Uh, you know, these kind of visual snapshots that a central midfield player might take, for instance, where they, they repeatedly take snaps, snapshots to get a, a good overview of the overall field of play, where teammates and opponents are areas of free space that could be exploited. And, uh, you know, the top midfield players in the Premier League make one of these movements of the head every one or two seconds. Uh, so, you know, maybe 50 to 60 snapshots of the field uh, every minute. So clearly they're reading the game and thinking ahead of time uh, as to what will ha actually happen. And this, this isn't, it's not a, 
it's not a, an endowed skill. It's one that they've obviously acquired through uh, coaching, practice, and clearly a lot of experience uh, in match scenarios. I guess your average type player is not picking up the, the same type of information. What is the elite player doing in regards to the, the periphery and central vision? Yeah, well, central vision or what would be referred to as the fovea is only the central one to two degrees of the visual field. So when you uh, read a piece of text, for instance, on a book or a newspaper, what you're doing is you're putting, bringing that word onto the fovea. And then the remaining portion of the visual field is called peripheral vision. And that's very sensitive to motion, but not necessarily very good at picking up fine detailed movement. So these different subcomponents of the visual system, of course, interact during perception in the real world situation. So you may, for instance, get the defender who fixates on the ball or the lower body of the player in possession of the ball, trying to pick up these postural cues, if you like, but at the same time monitoring using peripheral vision, the movements and positions of strikers in the case of a defender so that he or she can then anticipate what's happening. So, Whilst less skilled defenders, as you suggest, may be foveating on the ball and spending a lot of their time picking up inf information from the ball, the skilled players are more likely to be using peripheral vision in those types of situations. Uh, and again, this is something that they've learned and adapted to the, to the constraints of the game over time. I saw a great video yesterday about Ashley Cole and for me growing up I I watched him a lot because that was I played left back and for me I, I think he's probably the best fullback England's ever produced and the video that he spoke about yesterday was actually when he was it was a game where he was playing for Arsenal against Man United and he spoke in detail about defending in 1v1 situations. And a lot of, very, very little of what he spoke about was focusing on the ball. It was more so focusing on the player that he was facing and the things that he had to do to defend against that player. And in this case, it was Wayne Rooney. So you've got two world-class players in that moment that are playing against each other. And Ashley Cole was breaking it down into... Wayne Rooney's body shape. When he received the ball, where was his head? Yeah. Where was he facing? What was he going to do next based on what he'd done previously? And how was my body shape going to impact his next move? And it was in the video itself, it was very evident that look, he was a great athlete, but his actual understanding in those situations was it was world-class, which is why I'm guessing when he played in in big tournaments, in big games, he never got beat. He, he played against Ronaldo and they went at it for, for 90 minutes every time and he came off quite well. So mm -hmm. it, I don't know if you've seen the video, Mark. It's, I, I would recommend watching it. It's really uh, good. No, I mean, it sounds great. And, and in fact, we actually have a programme of research that's looking at that issue at the moment in the sense of... Um, you know, if you're a full bat like Cole, then, then clearly he would have had, what, 20, 30 years of experience 
of playing against wide players in that one-on-one situation. So clearly what he's done is he's developed this extensive network of knowledge around you know, what can and can't happen in that situation. And I think some of that knowledge is generic, you know, when you're playing against any wide player, and some of it is player-specific. So when you're playing against a Rooney or a Ronaldo, what are they most likely to do in that situation? And, and what we've been interested in recently, actually, is how quickly some of these adaptations occur. So by way of example, if you're a left back, uh, you're playing against a right winger that you've never come across before. Uh, you know, he gets the ball one minute, knocks the ball down the line, beats you for pace, gets a crossing. So then how do you then use that knowledge to adapt? So next time you're thinking, well, this guy's got pace. He's quicker than I am. So I can't push him outside. I have to push him inside. So what he's doing, he's then tapping into some of that knowledge to help him know what kind of strategy to develop in that situation. So, so we're interested in identifying some of that knowledge. We're interested in, in how that knowledge is acquired. And of course, we're particularly interested in how can you develop that knowledge base more quickly in, in a left back, like Ashley Cole in, in his youth, for instance. You know, how can you develop that kind of understanding of the game at a very early stage? Uh, and one of the points I'll make as well, because I think it po- points to a question that, that Keith tied in earlier as well, in terms of the nature of knowledge, I guess. And, and um, I mean, some knowledge is very explicit in the sense that, you know, you maybe have an if-then-do kind of rule book that if this happens, you do this. So it's very explicit. You're very consciously aware of it. Uh, and maybe a lot, of, a lot of knowledge that comes through instruction or the use of video-based feedback is that very explicit cognitive knowledge, but also some knowledge is very subconscious or tacit or what we call implicit, intuitive, if you like, in so much as that, uh, you know, you could ask Ashley Cole in one instance, you know, why did you do that? Well, I did that because, you know, he's got pace, he's quicker than I, I pushed him inside and I know I'll get support and so on and so forth. But there are other situations you could ask a Wayne Rooney, for instance, you know, why did he play that pass? And he might go, I don't know. We've just, mm. just played it. it just happened you know so so there are different types of knowledge and the interesting thing of course from a coaching instruction perspective is uh, how do those different knowledge bases develop what can we do as coaches and instructors to facilitate the development of those sources and, and how do they interact um, and i can easily see for instance like street football for instance must be great at developing some of those intuitive decision making skills because this dynamic is variable, there's no instruction, there's no coach-led feedback. So players have to be creative and problem solve. Whereas, of course, you can see the other scenario that if, if the coaching is very, very prescriptive and the coach is saying, you know, stop, stand still, don't do this, do that, then you're obviously developing a certain type of knowledge, which may be useful in some instances, but maybe not in others. Mark, in chapter 10 of, of the book, Mm-hmm. You also talk about quiet eye. Yeah. What is it? And what purpose does it serve in, in sports like rugby, snooker, golf, basketball? Yeah. Uh, quiet eye is the final fixation of the fovea, central vision, on the target uh, prior to the initiation of an action, like throwing a dart, uh, hitting a ball in snooker, or releasing a basketball in the basketball free throw. And the phenomenon has been actually demonstrated across a range of different aiming sports. 
And essentially what you find is that experts have a longer quiet eye period compared to less expert performers. And even if you look within participant, you know, for instance, look at a skilled basketball player when he or she has a successful free throw shot compared to a less successful one, the quiet eye period is invariably longer. Um, we also know that this quiet eye period is, is impacted by things like anxiety and stress and fatigue. Uh, we, we probably know less about what actually goes on during this quiet eye. I mean, some of the quiet eye is probably related to the underlying processes of, of structuring the movement that you're going to execute in some shape or form. Some of it may be related to arousal control and having an external focus of attention uh, rather than overanalyzing sequence of the movements. So you'll see, for instance, in rugby players, and there's a nice section in it from Dan Carter, where he used to pick a face in the crowd in the middle of the posts and then just fixate on that on that face. And then therefore the focus of attention was externally about hitting the target rather than internally about the dynamics of the movement. So um, it, it's an interesting phenomenon which seems to exist across a range of different sports. How do you train it? What do you need to do to train quiet eye? There, there has been some work that has used video-based feedback. So the mere knowledge of the fact, for instance, that your quiet eye is shorter on less successful attempts or as a function of anxiety or fatigue may potentially bring some, some conscious strategies to, to prolong the quiet eye period. Uh, and maybe even coming back to that issue around internal and external focus of attention, trying to develop strategies that allow athletes to focus externally on the task may have a lot of advantages rather than them thinking of the movement itself. And of course, this is the advantage of more implicit forms of coaching again, in the sense that it means that people learn skills, but without actually consciously being aware of how they're performing it, they just perform the task. Um, so certainly instructions that focus on an external focus of attention are more likely to prolong the quiet eye period. Uh, I mean, there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest, for instance, that when we become anxious, we reinvest cognitive effort in aspects of the movement that have previously become automated. You know, and if you look at some of the classic books, you may have heard of in a game of tennis or in a game of golf, for instance. And if you're playing golf against uh, someone and he or she's playing well that day, then you can often disrupt them by saying, you know, you're driving well today. What are you doing differently this week compared to last week? And then all of a sudden they start reflecting consciously about, yeah, what am I doing well? And, and then you could get this, you know, move back to this internal focus, which um, kind of a negative impact on performance. The likes of Owen Farrell when he's playing or kicking, he's... Uh... We, you see where he fixates. It looks like he's, he's tracking something that I don't know what he's looking at. I don't know. Only he'll know what he's looking at. But he seems to be tracking the, the actual pathway where he wants the ball to go. Is that would that be classed as quiet eye? Uh, quiet eye is more fixating on the target that you're aiming towards. So I guess the target is more likely to be between the posts as opposed to tracking the ball per se. 
Okay. Um, although, you know, it could vary from one individual athlete. to I mean, the interesting thing, you could also suggest that the quiet eye could be on the ball uh, in the sense that a player may fixate on the ball, strike through the ball, and then see where the ball's gone. Or, of course, they could fixate on an external target. Both are external focus of attention to some degree in the sense that they're not focusing on the, the movement per se, but rather on the end outcome of the movement. Uh, but I, I, I mean, based on the data, a little bit of data that exists on rugby, and certainly our interview with Dan Carter, it seems to me that people are more likely to be fixating on a target between the posts rather than the ball per se. But, you know, there may be some variances there across players. So we spoke about a little bit around, not the depth of communication, but the qualities required to get information from from coach to player. So there's a relative amount of content where player understanding gets greater. But what mm. qualities do the most effective coaches possess are they are they less the owner of all knowledge and more the master of facilitator i mean i would say that there's definitely been a cultural change over the last two three decades or so uh, even in football which is i guess historically has been a very prescriptive type of sport sport so this notion that the coach is is the purveyor of all knowledge um you know, I think has has tended to be superseded these days by this notion and the view that, you know, the athlete as the player is also part of this learning process so that the role of the coach becomes one of a facilitator or a catalyst to create learning environments where the player, the athlete can learn somewhat independently. It doesn't at all mean that the role of the coach becomes redundant far from it to some degree I guess uh, you know the role of probably the role of the coach is more challenging in the sense that almost as a coach you have to know exactly what it is about the environment uh, and what you need to change in that instance in order to allow the player to learn independently whereas I guess you know historically you could go to 101 best soccer drills and you could easily go to a drill and put the drill on tells you what to say when to say it um, and whilst that may produce good performance during practice, ultimately, the research evidence now suggests quite strongly that it wasn't the type of prescriptive approach that is conducive to long term learning. So certainly the role of guided discovery, and less explicit forms of instruction have uh, gathered a lot of support over the last decade or two. So, Mike, what's the difference between performance and learning? Yeah, this, I mean, at one level, this sounds quite simple, but I think at another level, it's actually probably one of the most difficult things for coaches to embrace in the sense that um, when, when you're taking a coaching session, whatever the sport, whatever the age of the kids, whether they're kids or adults, uh, what you see in that session is their performance, their observed behavior. Now, in order to determine whether learning is place, you actually need to be able to uh, see whether that change in performance is retained over time into subsequent practice sessions. And you also, most importantly, need to know that that change in performance in practice also transfers into competition. Okay, Because ultimately, we can't directly see learning. We have to infer 
that learning has taken place through changes in behavior or performance over time. So the reason why this differentiation between performance and learning is important is that if I'm taking a session, then I know that if I provide uh, lots of instruction, demonstrate often, do specific block practice of a single skill, notably using drills and grids, and provide lots of instruction, that performance, observed behavior, would be good in that session. But rather paradoxically, again, keeping with the relative age effect factor, almost the reverse conditions promote better learning, long-term learning and retention and transfer of skills. So then the, maybe the questions I need to ask as a coach is, well, do I really need to demonstrate? Am I actually giving them any new information that they already have? How, what's the least amount of instruction that I need to give the players? Uh, what's the least amount of feedback I need to give them so that I'm encouraging them to process information? And am I creating practice sessions that mimic the demands of competition in the sense that they're dynamic, they're random, they're chaotic, they're challenging, there's emotional stress, there's physical stress, there's anxiety. And whilst performance in the practice session may be poorer, ultimately there is more likely to be transfer to long-term uh, retention transfer that is learning. So I suppose the irony of it here is that what you see in practice isn't necessarily what you get from a coach's perspective. Uh, so ultimately what I mean by that is practice could be great, everything's going perfectly, but there may be relatively little learning that's taking place. Whereas in contrast, you know, you may perceive that practice is, is not going well and it's chaotic and random, but rather ironically, there could be quite a lot of learnings. So that distinction between performance and learning is, um, is, is an important one uh, to at least be aware of uh, in terms of concepts of learning and the science that underpins learning. I mean, ultimately, of course, there's a huge amount of craft or intuitive knowledge that's needed from the coach there to, to decide, uh, you know, how much structure and how much randomness is in the practice session and when do you progress along that continuum. I mean, we know that there are different skills, attributes, characteristics that contribute to performance. But performance itself is very difficult to quantify. Uh, and I know that we can, we can certainly isolate components of performance and measure them. So we could measure speed over five, 10, 15 meters, for instance. We can, uh, we can measure strength. We can measure decision-making. We can measure technical components. But I guess the problem is they all come together in a very rich tapestry to determine performance. Uh, I, I, sorry, and we can even use, of course, data analytics to support huge growth in artificial intelligence and data analytics that allows us to potentially quantify aspects of performance that may or may not be perform uh, important. But I want to reiterate that what they're doing, however, is quantifying aspects of performance and not performance. Because performance is very difficult to quantify. It's a little bit like the age-old argument, you know, who's best, Messi or Ronaldo? Well, there's an element of subjectivity to that. Yes, we can refer to data and statistics to help make the judgment, but in, invariably, football, unlike sports like the 100-meter sprint or swimming or you know, most of the athletic events, it is not easily quantified and measurable. So... What, of course, then happens is that coaches make judgments around whether the players improve, whether the team has improved, 
So, and I guess this comes back to my issue before that, um, you know, there's a lot of intuition and there's an art to coaching to some degree. However, I suppose my argument as a scientist, of course, is what I would say is that, yes, coaching is an art, but there's no reason why that art can't be informed by science. So therefore, what we need to do is to try probably moving forward to better combine the science with the art of coaching so that as much as possible, our behaviours as coaches are driven by the science. But I accept the fact that, you know, there are some things that are, are very difficult to measure. Uh, you know, the intuitive decision about when you progress from a simpler to a more complex drill, uh, you know, when you work on specific skills are not things that are necessarily easy to quantify. Now, Mark, there is a, there's a big debate around when athletes should specialise in a particular sport. Can you share different pathways for engagement for, for children um, with specialisation, diversification and early engagement? Yeah, I mean, we spoke about this a little bit earlier on, but I mean, I can elaborate further, I suppose, in the sense that I guess there's some data that clearly suggests that there are some potential downsides to early specialization, notably burnout and overuse injuries may occur if kids spend too much time in, in one sport or other during development. Um, uh, and ultimately, as I said, the balance is around issues like how culturally popular is the sport and to what extent do kids begin participating in this sport globally and and what are the demands of the sport in terms of is it sport that's mainly dependent on physical physiological attributes or more dependent on technical and tactical skills and and of course, this is, I think this is the, the moral dilemma to some degree in the sense that if it was a perfect world, of course, what we would do is, is encourage kids to take a wide sample, a wide variety of sports and start specializing at 12, 13, 14 years of age. Okay. However, clearly it's not. And then the problem is what you have is kids who uh, start playing in a sport very early, skiing two or three years of age, soccer four or five years of age. Uh, and, and they're investing a lot of time developing these technical and tactical skills so that in that sport, therefore, if you don't engage early enough, then clearly you're going to end up with this practice deficit that may be harder to overcome later in development. Um, so the pathway that I prefer in many ways is, is, is this early notion of early engagement in so much as the fact that, it, you know, in sports like soccer, I think it, there is evidence to suggest that it certainly helps if you engage early. And that engagement doesn't necessarily have to be through structured coach-led practice. It could also be through street sport. But at the same time, I would not, you know, I would actively encourage kids to participate in as many other sports as, as they can and wish to do so. Um, and ultimately, I think what gets missed out a little bit in all of these discussions as well, of course, is what the child wants to do. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I was a soccer player at a reasonable level and I, I loved it. And that's the only thing I wanted to do. Every other sport, I, I mean, I took part in a wide variety of other sports, but they were all second choices. Uh, you know, if I, if, if I couldn't play football, then OK, I'd play another sport. So, you know, if the child has found their one true love early, so to speak, and they're really passionate, uh, motivated and interested in the sport, then... Um, 
so long as training is fun oriented, is variable and dynamic so that it lessens the reduced risk of burnout and overuse injuries, then, then I, think, I think that's fine. I haven't got a problem with that either. Suppose ultimately my, my one line answer would be, you know, there isn't a clear answer to the issue. Uh, and you can't say that one pathway is better than the other. There are so many different variables that impact on that decision, not least, of course, the athlete's interests. Uh, final question. In your field of expertise, what is it that continues to inspire you? Um, well, I, I think we've touched upon in this in this podcast the two areas that have greatest interest to me. One is game intelligence. Uh, you know, how do we measure it? How do we develop it? Uh, and then, of course, this notion of how do we optimize uh, learning environments to to better create optimal learning. I mean, uh, you know, a pitch that I use quite often is that, you know, as someone with a background in sports science, I think sports science has made a massive contribution to high performance over the last few decades. Uh, but I think maybe a lot of that contribution has been in areas like uh, fitness and conditioning, uh, you know, diet and nutrition, uh, some of it in sports psychology. And, and maybe the last untapped frontier from my perspective is skill acquisition, you know, in the sense that it's coaches that spend most of the time working with athletes, not sports scientists. And, and therefore, to some degree, what I would call for, I guess, is skill acquisition specialists to work more closely with coaches to try and create more science to support these intuitive judgments and decisions that coaches make. Uh, and I suppose if you put it in a practical perspective, you know, what, what is an effective coaching session? So in every hour of practice that the coach spends with the, with the kids, you know, what would be good transfer? You know, how much of that practice transfers to competition? And I suspect, and it, of course, it's something that we really can't measure. Uh, and if I could find a way to measure it, I guess I'd make myself a lot of money. But, but ultimately, you know, how do we measure that transfer? And notionally, if we think that the transfer from practice to competition is 30%, I'm just picking a figure somewhat randomly from my mind at that point. I mean, isn't the way to optimize performance moving forward is if we can raise that 30% to 50% or even higher? So in other words, how do we train most effectively in practice to make sure that the necessary adaptations occur that lead to the development of ex expertise. Now, uh, for me, I see that as uh, the new revolutionary pathway moving forward. How do we optimize? How do we use learning sciences to optimize skill development in players? Well, Mark, very informative and there's a lot of things in here that you've mentioned that it, it's got me thinking. So from my dad and I, I want to thank you for coming on today. It's been a, it's been a pleasure having you and I'm sure there'll be more things coming out from yourself that'll, that'll help the world of, of sports and beyond over the coming years as well. Well, once again, many thanks for the, uh, the warm invitation. Uh, I've uh, I've enjoyed the discussion and our previous conversations, and your book, which is also doing well. I've, I've kept an eye on it, so so that's great. I mean, I mean, ultimately, you know, often uh, there isn't clear answers to a lot of these questions, but I think the most important thing is that 
that there is open dialogue from, from coaches and scientists around, you know, what do we know? What don't we know? What do we need to do to progress our knowledge? And how can we collectively work together to make sure that we're, um, we're developing athletes and also, of course, looking after the welfare of, of the children that are engaged in the sport as well. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.